Chapter 1, Part 1 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, Urbain Grandier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Sunday the 26th of November, 1631, there was great excitement in the little town of Luden, especially in the narrow streets which led to the church of St. Pierre in the marketplace, from the gate of which the town was entered by anyone coming from the direction of the abbey of St. Joan les Marmes. This excitement was caused by the expected arrival of a personage who had been much in people's mouths latterly in Luden, and about whom there was such a difference of opinion that discussion on the subject between those who were on his side and those who were against him was carried on with true provincial acrimony. It was easy to see, by the varied expressions on the faces of those who turned the doorsteps into improvised debating clubs, how varied were the feelings with which the man would be welcomed, who had himself formally announced to friends and enemies alike the exact date of his return. About nine o'clock a kind of sympathetic vibration ran through the crowd, and with the rapidity of a flash of lightning the words, There he is! There he is! passed from group to group. At this cry, some withdrew into their houses and shut their doors and darkened their windows, as if it were a day of public mourning, while others opened them wide, as if to let joy enter. In a few moments, the uproar and confusion evoked by the news was succeeded by the deep silence of breathless curiosity. Then, through the silence, a figure advanced, carrying a branch of laurel in one hand as a token of triumph. It was that of a young man of from thirty-two to thirty-four years of age, with a graceful and well-knit frame an aristocratic air and faultlessly beautiful features of a somewhat haughty expression. Although he had walked three leagues to reach the town, the ecclesiastical garb with which he wore was not only elegant, but of dainty freshness. His eyes turned to heaven, and singing in a sweet voice praise to the Lord, he passed through the streets leading to the church in the marketplace with a slow and solemn gait, without vouchsafing a look, a word, or a gesture to anyone. The entire crowd, falling into step, marched behind him as he advanced, singing like him, the singers being the prettiest girls in Luden, for we have forgotten to say that the crowd consisted almost entirely of women. Meanwhile, the object of all this commotion arrived at length at the porch of the Church of St. Pierre. Ascending the steps, he knelt at the top and prayed in a low voice. Then rising, he touched the church doors with his laurel branch, and they opened wide as if by magic revealing the choir, decorated and illuminated, as if for one of the four great feasts of the year, and with all its scholars, choir boys, singers, beadles, and vergers in their places. Glancing around, he for whom they were waiting came up the nave, passed through the choir, knelt for a second time at the foot of the altar, upon which he laid the branch of laurel, then putting on a robe as white as snow, and passing the stole around his neck, he began the celebration of the mass before a congregation, composed of all those who had followed him. At the end of the Mass, a tedium was solemn. He who had just rendered thanks to God for his own victory, all the solemn ceremonial usually reserved for the triumphs of kings, was the priest, Urbain Grandier. Two days before, he had been acquitted, in virtue of a decision pronounced by M. de Escoblau de Sudis, Archbishop of Bordeaux, of an accusation brought against him of which he had been declared guilty by a magistrate, and in punishment of which he had been condemned to fast on bread and water every Friday for three months, and forbidden to exercise his priestly functions in the diocese of Poitiers for five years, and in the town of Luden forever. 
These are the circumstances under which the sentence had been passed and the judgment reversed. Urbain Grandier was born in Rovere, a village near Sable, a little town of Basmain. Having studied the sciences with his father Pierre and his uncle Claude Grandier, who were learned astrologers and alchemists, he entered, at the age of twelve, the Jesuit College of Bordeaux, having already received the ordinary education of a young man. The professors soon found that beside his considerable attainments he had great natural gifts for language and oratory. They therefore made of him a thorough classical scholar, and in order to develop his oratorical talent, encouraged him to practice preaching. They soon grew very fond of a pupil who was very likely to bring them so much credit, and as soon as he was old enough to take holy orders, they gave him the cure of souls in the parish of Saint-Pierre in Luden, which was in the gift of the college. When he had been some months installed there as a priest in charge, he received a prebendal stall, thanks to the same patrons in the collegiate church of Sainte-Croix. It is easy to understand that the bestowal of these two positions on so young a man, who did not even belong to the province, made him seem in some sort a usurper of rights and privileges belonging to the people of the country, and drew upon him the envy of his brother ecclesiastics. There were, in fact, many other reasons why Urbane should be an object of jealousy to these. First, as we have already said, he was very handsome. Then the instruction which he had received from his father had opened the world of science to him, and given him the key to a thousand things which were mysteries to the ignorant, but which he fathomed with the greatest ease. Furthermore, the comprehensive course of study which he had followed at the Jesuit college had raised him above a crowd of prejudices, which are sacred to the vulgar, but for which he made no secret of his contempt. And lastly, the eloquence of his sermons had drawn to his church the greater part of the regular congregations of the other religious communities, especially of the mendicant orders, who had till then, in what concerned preaching, borne away the palm of Luden. As we have said, all this was more than enough to excite first jealousy and then hatred, and both were excited in no ordinary degree. We all know how easily the ill-natured gossip of a small town can rouse the angry contempt of the masses for everything which is beyond or above them. In a wider sphere, Urbain would have shone by his many gifts, but cooped up as he was within the walls of a little town, and deprived for air and space, all that might have conduced to his success in Paris led to his destruction at Luden. It was also unfortunate for Urbain that his character, far from winning pardon for his genius, augmented the hatred which the latter inspired. Urbain, who in his intercourse with his friends was cordial and agreeable, was sarcastic, cold, and haughty to his enemies. When he had once resolved on a course, he pursued it unflinchingly. He jealously exacted all the honour due to the rank at which he had arrived, defending it as though it were a conquest. He also insisted on enforcing all his legal rights, and he resented the opposition and angry words of casual opponents with a harshness which made them his lifelong enemies. The first example which Urbain gave of this inflexibility was in 1620, when he gained a lawsuit against a priest named Murnier. He caused the sentence to be carried out with such rigour that he awoke an inextinguishable hatred in Murnier's mind, which ever after burst forth on the slightest provocation. A second lawsuit, which he likewise gained, was one which he undertook against the chapter of Santa Croix with regard to his house, his claim to which the chapter disputed. Here again he displayed the same determination to exact his strict legal rights to the last iota, and unfortunately Mignon, the attorney of the unsuccessful chapter, 
was a revengeful, vindictive and ambitious man, too commonplace ever to arrive at a high position, and yet too much above his surroundings to be content with the secondary position which he occupied. This man, who was a canon of the Collegiate Church of Santa Croix, and director of the Ursuline Convent, will have an important part to play in the following narrative. Being as hypocritical as Urbain was straightforward, his ambition was to gain wherever his name was known a reputation for exalted piety. He therefore affected in his life the aestheticism of an anchorite and the self-denial of a saint. As he had much experience in ecclesiastical lawsuits, he looked on the chapter's loss of this one, of which he had in some sort guaranteed the success, as a personal humiliation. So that when Urbain gave himself airs of triumph and exacted the last letter of his bond, as in the case of Meunier, he turned Mignon into an enemy who was not only more relentless, but more dangerous than the former. In the meantime, and in consequence of this lawsuit, a certain Barot, an uncle of Mignon and his partner as well, got up a dispute with Urbain. But as he was a man below mediocrity, Urbain required in order to crush him, only to let fall from the height of his superiority, a few of those disdainful words which brand as deeply as a red-hot iron. This man, though totally wanting in parts, was very rich, and having no children was always surrounded by a horde of relatives, every one of whom was absorbed in the attempt to make himself so agreeable that his name would appear in Barot's will. This being so, the mocking words which were rained down on Barot spattered not only himself, but also all those who had sided with him in the quarrel, and thus added considerably to the tale of Urbane's enemies. About this epoch, a still graver event took place. Amongst the most assiduous frequenters of the confessional in this church was a young and pretty girl, Julie by name, the daughter of the king's attorney, Trinquant. Trinquant being, as well as Barot, an uncle of Mignon. Now it happened that this young girl fell into such a state of debility that she was obliged to keep to her room. One of her friends, named Martha Pelletier, giving up society of which she was very fond, undertook to nurse the patient, and carried her devotion so far as to shut herself up in the same room with her. When Julie Trinquant had recovered and was able again to take her place in the world, it came out that Martha Pelletier, during her weeks of retirement, had given birth to a child, which had been baptised and then put out to nurse. Now, by one of those odd whims which so often take possession of the public mind, everyone in Luden persisted in asserting that the real mother of the infant was not she who had acknowledged herself as such, that, in short, Martha Pelletier had sold her good name to her friend Julie for a sum of money, and of course it followed as a matter about which there could be no possible doubt that Urbain was the father. Trinquant, hearing of the reports about his daughter, took upon himself as king's attorney to have Martha Pelletier arrested and imprisoned. Being questioned about the child, she insisted that she was its mother and would take its maintenance upon herself. To have brought a child into the world under such circumstances was a sin, but not a crime. Trinquant was therefore obliged to set Martha at liberty, and the abuse of justice of which he was guilty served only to spread the scandal farther, and to strengthen the public in the belief it had taken up. Hitherto, whether through the intervention of the heavenly powers, or by the means of his own cleverness, Urbain Grandier had come out victor in every struggle in which he had engaged, but each victor had added to the number of his enemies, and these were now so numerous that any other than he would have been alarmed, and have tried either to conciliate them or take precautions against their malice. But Urbain, wrapped in his pride and perhaps conscious of his innocence, paid no attention to the counsels of his most faithful followers, but went on his way unheeding. 
All the opponents whom till now Urbane had encountered had been entirely unconnected with each other, and had each struggled for his own individual ends. Urbane's enemies, believing that the cause of his success was to be found in the want of cooperation amongst themselves, now determined to unite in order to crush him. In consequence, a conference was held at Barot's, at which, besides Barot himself, Meunier, Trinquant, and Mignon took part, and the latter had also brought with him one menuar, a king's counsel and his own most intimate friend, who was, however, influenced by other motives than friendship in joining the conspiracy. The fact was that Menuau was in love with a woman who had steadfastly refused to show him any favour, and he had got firmly fixed in his head that the reason for her health's inexplicable indifference and disdain was that her bane had been beforehand with him in finding an entrance to her heart. The object of the meeting was to agree as to the best means of driving the common enemy out of Luden and its neighbourhood. Urbane's life was so well ordered that it presented little which his enemies could use as a handle for their purpose. His only foible seemed to be a predilection for female society, while in return all the wives and daughters of the place, with the unerring instinct of their sex, seeing that the new priest was young, handsome and eloquent, chose him, whenever it was possible, as their spiritual director. As this preference had already offended many husbands and fathers, the decision the conspirators arrived at was that on this side alone was Grandier vulnerable, and that their only chance of success was to attack him where he was weakest. Almost at once, therefore, the vague reports which had been floating about began to attain a certain definiteness. There were allusions made, though no name was mentioned, to a young girl in Luden, who in spite of Grandier's frequent unfaithfulness, yet remained his mistress-in-chief. Then it began to be whispered that the young girl, having had conscientious scruples about her love for Urbain, he had allayed them by an act of sacrilege. That is to say, he had, as a priest, in the middle of the night performed the service of marriage between himself and his mistress. The more absurd the reports, the more credence did they gain, and it was not long till everyone in Luden believed them true, although no one was able to name the mysterious heroine of the tale who had the courage to contract a marriage with the priest and considering how small Luden was, this was most extraordinary. Resolute and full of courage as was Grandier, at length he could not conceal from himself that his path lay over quicksands. He felt that slander was secretly closing him round, and that as soon as he was well entangled in her shiny folds, she would reveal herself by raising her abhorred head, and that then a mortal combat between them would begin. But it was one of his convictions that to draw back was to acknowledge one's guilt. Besides, as far as he was concerned, it was probably too late for him to retrace his steps. He therefore went on his way as unyielding, as scornful, and as haughty as ever. End of chapter 1, part 1